Yes, yes. It was yes, yes. Okay. But in today's real estate scenario, the it have been it, 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 the whole uh, concept, the whole perspective has changed a lot. Earlier, they used to get only one rupees or thirty five paise for a house. But the house used to belong to the temple. The most important thing, and I'm sure Dr. Bajaj would uh, uh, approve my uh, point here, is by the virtue of holding these properties, our presence, the Hindu presence in a, across a wide area, was established. <coughs> Today, if government takes over a temple, a temple property, if they take over 20 grounds and they give it to a public purpose, we are out of that place. They will not take a mosque or they will not take a church property. They are firmly established wherever they are and they are expanding. Okay. Now, um, we have no, most of us have no idea like what are the properties coming out of the temple side. I will come to that. This is Mayurapur Kabalishi Temple. Every one of us here is in <coughs> Chennai and probably Kabalishi Temple. <coughs> the property the Kabalishi Temple has got is about 5,000 rows. In one single lot, <coughs> They have 305 grounds of land in previous road. The government fixed rate for one ground per month is 3 lakh rupees, which means they should get about 108 crores a year. From that lot, it has three more similar properties. So how much they get? They get nothing. And this is just one of the properties of the temple. Now, a snapshot of how much we have as temple properties. Before independence, in Madras Presidency, there were 60 lakh acres, <coughs> part of Andhra Pradesh, part of Mysore, part of Malabar, and the entire Tamil Nadu. The temple and Hindu institutions had 60 lakh acres of land. 1986, Tamil Nadu temples had 5,25,000 acres. Between 1986 and now, we lost almost 50,000 acres of agricultural lands. Now, in this 4,78,000, uh, acres of land, about 100,000 acres is uh, become semi-urban over the years. That means they have, the value has increased multifold. And we have 22,600 buildings measuring 2.545 gross square feet, 33,627 sites measuring 29 gross square. Now the sites are a very interesting thing. Agriculture lands will be outside the village, sometimes in built in a, in a place where the temple is not even situated, many miles away from it. Like Rameshwaran temple has got lands in Tanjavu district, in Trichy district and all that. People have gone there have endowed from their own lands. The temple has records of it, but we don't know if any income is coming. These sites are always in the same village or same town or the same city. We talked about the Kabbalisha temple, they are sites, three and five grounds. Now, if we take a minimum very much possible rent of rupees 5 per square foot. And let's make this 29 crore as 30 crores for the sake of easy calculation. 30 crore into 5 per month is 150 crores. 150 crores into 12 is 1800 crores per annum. Very, no rocket science, very easy. 1800 crores to 2000 crores we can get from sites alone. But we are getting for all these 4,78,000 acres, 2.45 square feet of buildings and 29 crore square feet of sites, we are getting only 96 crores. And to get, collect this 96 crores, government is charging the temples 120 crores as administration and audit fees. 
all your hundi monies all your archana money all your darshan ticket collection and all these income they charge 12% as administration fees there is a hotel in hyderabad which used to be krishna oberoi then taj krishna then itc krishna krishna doesn't change but the management changes in these hotels oberoi oberoi takes over the management they charge about 3% as the gross revenue taj takes over they charge about 3% in a commercial venture when they do the entire management for a place like a luxury hotel they charge 3% they can't charge much more than that whereas in a dharmic institution saying that i'll administer your property i'll forcibly take your property i'll administer it i charge you 12% and you know the audit fee how much they charge it is 4% of the gross revenue nowhere in the world supposing i'm ambani's uh, auditor and for one year i'm able to audit and i charge you 4% of this gross revenue <laughs> you know, you know what about my life? For my future generations, my five, seven generations, just six. So four percent audit fees is unheard of, and we have allowed it for fifty, sixty years. So ninety-six crores they realize, and they charge us around twenty crores. So the temple loses money, whereas they should actually get about five thousand five hundred crores and the six thousand crores. I'll have another small. Uh, Two page thing, where I will show what we can do with this kind of money. Now I go to the next slide. So what is the track record of thing? Uh, government ninety two percent of the land revenue uncollected, ninety one percent of the site rents uncollected, seventy eight percent of the building rents uncollected, and the properties have been uh, transferred to individual names. Thousands of acres they have recovered eight thousand five hundred forty. So this is the track record of government. now how this is happening the most blatant and unconstitutional law of free india the hindu religious and charitable endowment acts of various states they have upfront trampled our religious and administrative and cultural rights on their feet and we have not even come out with a bill for question sir yes has this ever been accounted by cag or ag anybody doesn't come under cag there is no external audit for temples There is only an internal audit for temples from 1976, um, and, it is and, the, and by the HRNC department, not even by government. There is no oh, independent so, set of not from not not even from the uh, local fund, ministry and DN local fund audit or something like that. This is only by no external. I, I put it here, no external audit since 1976, and in 1976, when the GO was passed, there was no elected government. So, so uh, this is most likely a geo which has no legal validity because every rule passed under the HRMC Act should be approved by the legislature. As per the records I have searched, there is no such approval here. So, what started as a religious endowments act in 1925, after severe opposition from Muslims and Christians, became Hindu religious endowments act. And um, 1926, they started taking over temples and properties. And in soon after 1950 constitution coming, they came with the 1951 Act, by which a department was created. Earlier there was something called a board. Even today people say HRI board and all that. There's no HRI board. There's only HRC department. So the commissioner came and other government servants came. Madras High Court in the Chidambaram Temple and the Shirur Mat. Sir Ramachandra. Madras um, uh, 
High Court struck down a lot of these provisions of the 1951 Act. The Supreme Court, in, on an appeal, saved some of these provisions. They did not uphold all the sections struck down. They said, okay, some of these sections can be done. Um, now, the 1959 Act, I call it a fraud on the Constitution because those sections which were struck down by the Supreme Court of India as drastic and unconstitutional. And uh, even the Madras High Court, uh, Madras government's uh, advocate general would not support them. Those sections came back verbatim in the 1959. In uh, 2012, while we are preparing for Dayanda Sarsavi Swamiji's petition, I had the fortune of um, sitting with a very senior counsel of the uh, Supreme Court. And we were going section by section, sitting in Coimbatore, we were discussing it. And uh, when I pointed out that the sections struck down by the Supreme Court, I had come back verbatim in the 1959 Act. The senior counsel was shocked beyond words. He said, what were the advocates in Tamil Nadu doing for so many years? The government, which is supposed to safeguard our constitutional rights, comes with the fraud of disobeying, not only disobeying the Supreme Court, but also playing a fraud on the Hindus, citizens. Verbatim, they came back. Section 63 to 69 of the 51 Act is now Section 71 to 76 of the 59 Act. Section 56, which is the appointment of executive officer, which was struck down, was given a, like what they say, the old wine in new bottle. It would, uh, more drastic provisions were given in 43A and 45. Section 20 of the 1951 Act said the commissioner has supervised the power over all endowments. Then Karnanidhi in 1974, he added temple supervised power over all endowments and the temples. What is the commissioner, an IAS officer, has to do anything with the temple, agamas, rituals, Vedas, temple practices? And why should he supervise a temple? In the Waka Act, it is clearly mentioned the place of worship will not come under the Act. Only the charities will come under the Act. Only the works will come under the Act. And there too, it will come under the executive officer only if the income is more than 5 lakh rupees a year. Here we have no such thing. We have 38,000 temples under uh, the HRNC department, of which 30,000 temples officially have less than rupees 5,000 annual income. 5,000 annual income means you have less than 420 rupees a month, which means less than 13 rupees, 14 rupees a day. For 15 rupees a day, why do you need an executive officer? Why do you need government control? Why do you need supervision? These temples are better served, given back to the community. They will take care of it. They will ensure there is three times puja a day. Because it is under the government and because the executive officer chases away everybody and anybody who wants to play a role in the temple, the temples are languishing. There's an observation I'd like to make. All of this 51, 54, 59, where before Dravidian parties came to power. Yes, yes, it's the Congress Council. The original Act 1957 was passed by Justice Party. By Justice Party. But the Congress government did nothing. That was the first time. The only little role played by da Rajaji was offering to withdraw the... 59 was Bhaktavatsu. 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 Bhaktavat